She worked as a go-go dancer, stripper and glamour model. She's been a performance artist of masochistic tangos and twisted mambos, a ballroom dance teacher, a street arts choreographer and a punk rock drummer. She worked with Robin Grissel, Genesis P. Orridge, Monta Kazaza, Derek Jarman, and she was there, right at the beginning of the formation of Adam and the Ants and the Monochrome set. But more on that in a minute. Welcome to the Bureau of Oz Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, still on the trail of this elusive thing called counterculture. Thanks to our fellow explorers this month, Adrian Pam Palmer and Jimmy contributed to our wild endeavours. We appreciate you. Come and join them and us, bureauofusculture.com. And you can egg us on in any way you can. So, gay London in the 70s, the Docklands and the derelict city, bedsit land, fetish wear, rubber miniskirts, Westwood and McLaren, Jordan, Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Roxy, The Monarch, Rima Rima, Stuart Leslie Goddard, dancing striptease, memories, writing, and yes, Adam and the Ants. They all appear in a wonderful book called 69 Exhibition Road, 12 True Life Tales from the Fag End of Punk Pullman Performance, published by Strange Attractor Press. And I'm very pleased for this episode of the Bureau to welcome the author herself, Dorothy Max Pryor. Welcome, Dorothy. Hello. I'm usually called Max, actually. You can call me Dorothy if you like. I don't really... Actually, that's one of my questions. Why Max? But I'm going to save that okay. for later. Okay. You still call yourself a punk girl. Yeah, I did a thing for Punk Girl Diaries a while ago, and I thought, am I still a punk girl? Yeah, once punk, always punk. I'm also a Catholic convent school girl, so once Catholic, always a Catholic. Well, actually, I, I went, I was taught by priests, so yeah. we've got that in common. Well, I'm, I was in, I was in convent school education until um, I was 19, so I came out and became a stripper and a punk rock. Drummer. I noticed, yeah, you changed, <laughs> changed tune a bit. My mum, who's a, a, still a devout Catholic, of course, says there's no such thing as an ex-Catholic. There's just a lapsed I, I Catholic. Think I tend to agree. Yeah, comes back on airplane when they're doing funny things and turbulence and things. When you face death, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Holy Mary, Mother of God, you know. Max, the thing I didn't mention, of course, um, in that list of your achievements slash past or present careers is the fact that you are an author as well and mm. you're the author of this 69 exhibition row, 12 True Life Tales from the Fag End of Punk, Porn and Performance. It's a terrific book and as I was just saying to you before we started... Um, it's a personal memoir, 12 Polaroids, I call them, I suppose, glimpses, yeah, nice into, glimpses yeah. into the mid-70s. But I thought it's a great London book, and I thought we could start mm. there, actually. Yeah, that? well, that's a good, a good place to start, because that, uh, uh, one of the reasons I wanted it to, um, to be called 69 Exhibition Road is partly because that frames mm. the, the kind of time frame of the book is um, almost completely the time that I lived at that address, mm. which is in South Kensington. So that was kind of 1976 to 1982. The book has a sort of one story that's for the year before as a kind of scene setter of what was happening in London in 75. But um, I it very much, yes, it's very much a kind of, oh, yeah, use the, um, the posh trendy word, psychogeographical kind of account of... Uh, 
of London times. You know, I, f- I feel that London is very much alive as a kind of character in the book. You know, we're in Soho now, which is probably radically different than when you were hanging out here in the 70s and 80s. But um, for me, it's quite fascinating to get these glimpses into the past life of the city. And in fact, on that subject, I wanted to start off, if it's OK with you, with a reading from the book. This is your little introduction. We're sitting in Brooks on Brompton Road, just up from the South Kensington station. We come here a lot, me and Andy. That is, we live just around the corner on Exhibition Road. We like Brompton Road and we especially like it here. We like to sit in the window seat so we can see who's coming and going. An old couple, at least 60 they are, stand outside reading the menu. He's wearing a camel-coloured crombie coat with a black velvet collar. He has proper gentleman's shoes, black leather, nicely polished. There's something slightly racy about him, but it's hard to say what. She's a little more showy. She has hennaed hair and ruby red lipstick. But what was she wearing? I really can't remember. Does it matter? Not too much, I suppose. But it's bothering me. Why do I remember something so clearly? What somebody was wearing, what somebody else said decades ago, and not others. If, like Christopher Isherwood, I'm a camera, that I'm a malfunctioning CCTV blinking on and off, capturing moments randomly and putting them into storage. Well, she'll have to be wearing something, perhaps a pink boucle jacket and skirt and black patent court shoes, that'll do. Rewind. Ah, there we are. There we were. That'll be us, says Andy. Oh, so you think we'll still be together when we're 60, I say. No, says Andy. We'll be married to other people. We're quiet for a while, watching as the old couple decide to come in, open the door, walk past us and find themselves a table. I can't imagine living to be 60. I can't imagine Andy at 60, married to someone else, but still meeting me for lunch. 40 years go by, and here we are, just like that. (laughs) Oh, lovely to hear it. I mean, that's very touching, I thought. It sort of frames the book and psychogeographically or from a personal point of view that's a rather lovely bracket for you now and you then and writing this book writing the 12 stories did that take you vividly back to that time it did i mean one thing i wanted to do in that um little intro prologue whatever uh was be honest about about memory and how memory works so uh, hence the owning up to, to so having the memory and being thrown back in there in the process of writing and then you know when you're writing something and you suddenly go oh god but what was she wearing I really remember what he was wearing what was she wearing <laughs> and oh no I can skip over that and I thought no I won't skip over it I'll actually own up to it because I quite like it when writers own up to the process of, mm. mem- of, of, of recalling memories and um and yeah, you know, that whole thing of being a sort of faulty camera rather than a, a, a camera that records absolutely everything. But we've all had that experience of some things being completely vivid memories. And then something else that you think is more important, it's just disappeared completely. Yeah, I mean, the memories are very interesting and strange thing, isn't it? Something which happened um, two weeks ago can seem distant and something which happened years ago I mean you can remember it vividly because you can remember how it felt I had a program actually uh, recently about a woman um, an Australian woman who's got total recall she remembers everything oh my goodness which is nightmarish of course including every dream she's ever had that's totally scary. <laughs> that's, that's scary, totally, yeah. Really scary, but yeah. actually, she was obviously interested on the subject of memory. But she's even she said that you know um, our emotions actually play a large part in how we remember, mm. and we remember things differently depending on what emotional mood we're in now. But I thought it would have been nice to start Max with 
you know, a description of this house building 69 exhibition mm. mode. But just get us to there. So just give us a lightning tour through your life up to the point of entering that door for the first time. You're a Londoner born and bred I'm there, Londoner right? born and bred, South London, yeah. Crystal Whereabouts? Palace. Crystal Palace, yeah, right. Gypsy Hill. Yeah. Um, so in convent school education, Catholic education, till I was 19. Okay, I went to teach training college. Uh, because I'm from working class background and that is what bright working class girls do, as it says in the book. I also had a place at Guildhall School of Music and Drama, but that was just a bit too scary at the time and it would have cost money. And the thing mm. about teacher training is you've got, um, you've got your fees paid for. So I was quite kind of uh, wide-eyed and innocent. Um, the one thing I had done my whole life was dance. And so um, I suppose my first kind of foray into alternative culture was going to the cockpit theatre and becoming part of the dance group there and through there meeting uh, a boy called Timmy, gay boy who um, was then my portal into, you know, the, the, the world, the world of gay London. At the time I was what we'd now call questioning. I mean, just didn't know what I was. I knew I wasn't kind of quote unquote normal. I was very much in part of the kind of um, the gay scene and of toying around with the women's movement taking part in political demos and things like that but just feeling a bit out of sync a lot of the time Can I mean I got chucked out of um, one one political meeting because I was wearing a dress you know <laughs> I mean, that was, that, yeah, I mean people, people worry now about the kind of turf versus trans wars but I tell you back then in the 1970s it was also pretty terrible people were in these incredible sort of sects you know right. you, were, you were stuck in one pigeonhole uh, um, and you weren't allowed to escape from that pigeonhole. So we talked a lot in this program about the sixties, mm. you know, the counterculture and inver- inverted mm. commas sort of thing. And then as the sixties turn into the seventies, and it darkens, you know, it's almost like the, that sort of bright psychedelic colours start to darken. Yeah. Counterculture itself becomes more social activism, politics. There's economic situation in the UK is. Starts to go down yeah. the pants, a bit like now, isn't it's it? A bit like now, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you know, dustman on strike, turmoil in the government, loads of yeah. Except then we just kept having general elections, whereas now we have none. Right, exactly, <laughs> just private elections for the, for yeah. the privileged few. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering if you could sort of set the scene as well about the city at that time. So, right, I mean, what was London like? Oh, a complete and utter mess. I mean, Derek Jarman's Jubilee, uh, which I write about in the book and the making of. Um, in a way, it's almost like a, I think it's almost like a documentary, you know. Obviously, it's it's kind of parody and surreal and blah blah blah. But but all of those kind of images of of bomb sites and just completely wrecked streets, you know. Um, I mean, uh, he did quite a bit of filming in um, in in what's now well, what was then the Docklands, but then the abandoned Docklands. I mean, it was completely wrecked abandoned lump of london and this was abandoned because it had been destroyed it was this this is still destruction from the war or is it is, is it the it's the also wrecking ball? it's also the it's it's that but it's also the shift that meant that that goods weren't coming in you know by boat into the docklands so much so there are a lot of the docklands people were just just you know made unemployed and mm. all of these big warehouses were just left rotting right and for anybody who doesn't know london it's sort of out east canary wharf basically yeah. which is now gleaming you know 
glass and steel and glittering buildings. I mean, that was an absolute wasteland. Right. It's now it's a sort of J.G. Ballardian sort of future. <laughs> yeah. Dystopian then it was, then it was sort of just mud and wrecked mud, yeah. buildings. You'd get you'd get this kind of strange thing where you'd get a complete, you know, brown site going on as far as you could see, with maybe two odd red brick pubs you know <laughs> sticking up and I was working in I mean I was doing all my kind of go-go dancing and stripping in the east end of the Docklands and things so those you you just go down like Tidal Basin or somewhere mm. like that you just walk endlessly down a road completely deserted road you know yeah I mean it's it's the the historically of course London well London still is technically a port and it all come up that far hadn't it so it had yeah. been a kind of rich bustling area and then it in the in the age of the container, they all sort of unloaded down at Tilbury, right? So yes. these vast vast docks were no longer needed, and they just what well, they just fallen into ruin, did they? Or yeah. they've been abandoned? They've just fallen fallen into ruin. Mm. I mean, in wearing one of my other hats, sort of running street theatre shows and things, um, one of the places I've in recent years done shows is St Catherine Docks, mm. and so that's right next to Derek Jarman and Andrew mm. Logan's old place, you know, on on the Shad. Mm. the Shad Thames, Butler's Wharf is where their their warehouse was, where they had all their wonderful parties and events. Um, And and that whole area that was completely deserted is is now, yeah, luxury yachts and, you know, incredibly expensive apartment blocks and things. So it's quite uh, quite hard to imagine something. Mm. I tell you what I saw the other day, actually. Um, There's a... um, There's a band called Unit 4 Plus 1, a 60s band, and um, they had a song... uh, uh, maybe it was one of hit called Concrete and Clay. There's a video on YouTube of them that was filmed on the site that's now the Barbican Estate <laughs> when it was just empty. Right. Well, Barbican's smack in the middle of the city, right, as well. Yeah. I mean, Covent Garden really was bomb sites. It had the the fruit and veg market in the middle of it that's now that sort of she-she, you know, buy frou-frou items of clothing and whatever. Um, but that was the fruit and veg market. But then that moved. I can't remember the year it moved to Nine Elms. But anyway, when it moved, it was then an abandoned building. And all around it were streets and streets of um, just, you know, really run down, old abandoned houses. Amazing. But then you did have busy bits of Covent Garden because you did have things like the Seven Dials Jazz Club. Right. Um, so that was another thing I did sort of again, just thinking of that time pre-punk um, I was very much into the sort of jazz scene. The Roxy as well, which you talk about. Yes, I which, mean, so which I, I used to go to before it was the Roxy because it was Shagaramas. Shagaramas. Was it a gay club or something? It was, was a gay it? club, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, there was obviously loads of gay clubs, but the ones that were, you know, places you went out to dance were um, Shagaramas, the Sombrero that was also called Yours or Mine, which is on Kensington High Street. There's one called the Pink Pig that I think was Earl's Court. There was the Masquerade. There was a very old-fashioned one called the Embassy in Leicester Square where you had to kind of knock on a door and be let in. And that was full of um, gentlemen of a certain age, you know, <laughs> very nicely attired in their suits, sipping their G&Ts and looking a little bit askance when <laughs> a girl and a very camp boy, as Timmy was, come through the door. I'm using modern language here, but you'd identified, as it were, bisexual or queer or not quite sure. Yeah, we or... didn't use the word queer then. I felt do you know what? The first person I know of to have used the word queer in anything other than just just a sort of derogatory way um, was um, Derek Jarman. Mm. Yeah, so there was this sort of growing You mean reclaimed thing, it as reclaiming a Reclaiming sort of, it, mm. yeah. Yeah, I identified as bisexual, massive Bowie fan, you know, mm. and um, what, what we might these days call questioning. I mean, mm. just really, really completely unsure mm. of, of what I was. And so you come I, out of that kind of Catholic 
girls' school background. Yeah, yeah, with lots of crushes on girls and little mm. kind of sort of girlfriends rather than boyfriends <laughs> in the teenage years. We haven't got time, obviously, to go into sort of history of, of gay London in the 70s here. I suppose in the 60s was probably the first time when young people could be sort of in certain circles be outwardly gay. Of course, it was still illegal. Still illegal, right? I mean, and then 1968, the Wolfenden report, I think it was called, wasn't it? When, um, and uh, people that people now in, in, um, in queer politics are very clear about pointing out that 1968 didn't mean the end of mm. discrimination it just meant a change in the law that made sex between consenting male adults um, all right in certain circumstances mm. so it wasn't a complete carte blanche you still couldn't you couldn't be in a shared flat for example because that then counted as a sort of gay brothel or something ridiculous wow so that was all part of the the very convoluted law that lots of restrictions you could have a, a man an adult man and at a time i think that was over 21 you could have sex with another consenting male but you had to be in a completely private place so mm. if you know like if like if we were sharing a flat you know and you were gay and you brought a boyfriend back you could be prosecuted wow, wow. i know it's wow. unbelievable just... i can't remember when that changed but you mm. know it took years and years mm. for the there's just incremental changes so mm. And we're still talking in the um, late 60s and early 1970s, we're still talking about a culture in which it's just so socially unacceptable in most normal circles to be gay. But in the underground, let's call it that, or yeah. it was kind of okay, or it was starting to become... It was, although you have this, still have this okay. kind of um, weird... You know, separation of um, different different clans. So we're swirling around... Um, and we've got the sort of city in the early 70s as this slightly dystopian in some ways, this kind mm. of, you know, somewhat ruined and, and social deprivation. You've got the, the political activism going on, the women's movement sort of on its way up. You've you've sort of not arrived because you're from London, but you've kind of come into the centre. And, and Timmy, who you've met, is your entree to this other world of... Gay yes. clubs and yeah. a different kind of people. Yeah, it was just like, you know, somebody I hadn't um, ever encountered before. Although, of course, he looked a lot like David Bowie, so that was right. fantastic. You know, henna hair, mm-hmm. scraggy fur coat, silver platform shoes, makeup, you know, long eyelashes, um, painted fingernails, all of that. Quite beautiful. Very beautiful, very lovely. Everybody I knew fell in love with him, male and female. <laughs> Couldn't take him anywhere, basically. <laughs> We're heading you know southwest central towards exhibition road and mm. sort of fascinating thing in terms of what you've we've already said but in terms of this particular street londoners will probably know it because it's and tourists because it's right opposite the, it's on the science museum right it's yes. got to be one of the poshest streets in town in a way the buildings are grand they always were grand mm. right I mean, they were but but that little um that little row of buildings, which is actually called Prince's Gate, mm. but we ne- no, we never actually used that on letters or anything. We always just put sixty nine Exhibition Road. But but that it the row of buildings I'm talking about is next to the Mormon Cathedral, opposite, mm. you know where that t- tunnel comes out. Yeah, the strange yeah, tunnel from the, the strange the, the tunnel tube station. Yes, so just where that comes out, right opposite there is is sixty nine seventy seventy one. Um, and yeah, very posh now, but um, at the time, completely run down. To listeners, you can't, uh, if you're not 
from London. You can't understand possibly how much different that place is now. And of course, yeah. m- many parts of, say, Notting Hill, which are now uber posh, you know, the, the Rackman, the famous kind of mm. like uh, slum landlord, you know, the, the houses that he had. Again, they were these grand Portland stone-faced buildings mm. with porticos and columns. So they'd obviously been very it's grand in the past. Yeah. And then they'd fallen into disrepute. And then it had Poor become part of this... <laughs> yeah, they'd become part of this so-called bedsit land. Now, I was just asking Adrian um, before you came, it's like, do bedsits even exist anymore? I mean, a bedsit Oh, is... they don't call them that anymore. Right. They're called luxury st- studio apartments. Because, I mean, a bedsit, <laughs> it's, it's, it's one room, is it? It's one got... room... Uh, and you a had a tiny cooker in the corner, mm-hmm. um, so so, I mean, it took me decades to learn how to bake a potato. Although I was very good at you know because it's, it's, it's just the rings. It's just the rings and a tiny rings. little mm. grill. So it's like a baby belling type thing. Mm. So that'd be in the corner, shared bathroom. So you we didn't you didn't even have your own bathroom. You didn't have no. your own water. No. So you had to if you were cooking even you had to go, go to out the down bathroom. The hall, yeah. <laughs> and you'd share with like five, six other. We were on the top floor, Andy and I. One time, I, I lived in three different um, rooms mm. in that house. There was one that I wasn't actually paying rent in. I was just living on somebody's floor. The wonderful German Monica, as I call her in the book, um, who's actually the reason I ended up in the house. And um, that was room one. Room two was uh, a little room in the basement with lots of mice next to the coal cellar. You said that full of pizza boxes. Didn't even didn't have, even a, didn't have a, cooker a cooker in that in there, one, no. So get pizzas. In that room, there yeah. was no cooking. So when you went, when you, went, you and Andy ended up on the top floor. Oh, that was, was really, deluxe. that was, uh, we'd, we'd gone really up market. Gone up yeah, market, we were up yeah. like five flights of stairs. So we're on the top floor and the top floor was um, shared, there was only one other room. This poor woman called Michelle who had to share the bathroom with us. Our bathroom was full of my exotic dancing clothes <laughs> and my sort of things like my sex pink rubber miniskirt and my... Sex as in the shop. Sex as in the shop, Westwood, yeah. 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 Um, and, <laughs> and also sex as in the, um, you know, sort of black kind mm. of thigh-high leggings and gloves and fetish wear <laughs> and things like that. Um, Andy's, which is not the sort of thing you want to see first thing in the morning, is it? Well, no, I don't some know. Yeah. To somebody else, yeah. And then there was um, all the sort of things like the, um, the t-shirts, because Andy was in the first lineup of the Ants, mm. Adam and the Ants, and um, uh, Jordan was managing at the time, mm. so Jordan was getting him lots of t-shirts. So we had all those infamous t-shirts hanging up in the bathroom as well the sort of gay cowboys and the cambridge rapist and the you're going to wake up one morning and know what side of the bed you're lying on t-shirts all worth a bomb now yes yes well like a sort of westwood ah. west westwood gully but listen we, we, we're jumping ahead there but so okay so you're on, you're on top floor but let's just backtrack a little yeah. bit because um so you'd come via timmy to know about this place let's let's go back and who's andy and how and why well, I was um, living on Monica's floor in Exhibition Road. So Monica was the person who, who lived there that I, you know, the reason why I was first staying there was, was having um, nowhere to live and, and living on her floor. And there was only one phone in the whole building and that was a pay phone that took two pence pieces that was down in the basement. So I was going down to the basement to use the phone and I came across two young men boys really down there and um, one of them said to me excuse me do you happen to know somebody called Monica who lives here so I of course took them back upstairs with me and um, 
Monica made them a cup of tea and we all got chatting. It turned out that they had formed a band and Monica was one of the singers in their band. Uh, and they were they were fanatical Velvet Underground fans. Um, and so Andy, Andy Warren, uh, and the, the, the other boy was Bid, who's a Bid from the monochrome set. Mm. Um, so this band had three singers at various points, depending on what day of the week it was. One of those singers was Bid. Another was Monica, um, who, of course, they... they they got in because she had a very deep you know, so she was, voice. She was the Nico. She was the Nico, Nico, Nico exactly. Right, yeah. And then the other singer was this very shy boy called Stuart with glasses and a lumberjack shirt um, who'd previously formed a band called The B-Sides with Andy. And, um, and then he'd disappeared mysteriously. And then he came back. And uh, when he came back, he decided that he was going to change his name to Adam and form a band called The Ants. So this sort of nascent band. Oh, and the reason I the reason I was um, a drummer is that Andy... when you say this in the book, I love this bit because this, <laughs> Andy says to you, "Do you want to play drums?" And you say, "I've never played drums." And he said, "That's okay." And you said, "I haven't got a drum kit." That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that's right. Like, you never played drums. Just, got a kit. You know, punk rock. Like, it's that was just, the era, just, right? You know, that was the era. It's because you, you had the attitude. Just you know, and I'm like, well, okay. You had the I mean, the thing was, I was a dancer, so rhythm right. was, was something that was of interest to me and was important to me. So, it, it, if somebody said, "Would you like to be the bass player? Would you like to be the guitarist?" I probably might have resisted a bit more strongly, but right. drummer seemed more kind of mm. kin to dancing. Yeah, so that was it. And then when I went along for the first rehearsal with this group of people that became, ultimately became the members of the Ants, the monochrome set in various uh, different constellations that kept swapping around for the first year or two, um, Andy just introduced me to the other people in the room as Max. And, and I'm just like, that's not my name, but um, it stuck. So and you were known as Dorothy up to that point, were you? Well, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Dorothy was my given name. So, yeah, I was, and, I was, you know. And then Max, because... Well, that's it. He won't tell me. Um, Max, because I, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, our favourite character in, in The Night Porter, Dirk Bogard, right. is called Max. Could be right. that. Right. Could be because... Um, could be because I had a Pearl Max wind drum kit. But I think I was called Max before the drum kit arrived. Don't know. Did that stuck? It's just stuck. Yeah. Nobody will answer me when I ask them why I was called Max. <laughs> I think sort of Andy and Bid are probably the only people that might have an answer and they've probably forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> but you and Andy became an item, right? Yes. Yeah, in our funny, slightly queer sort of way. Stuart, now, Adam, befriends you, doesn't he? And he's sort of, you become his confidant, sort of almost muse in a way. You be- yeah. Or, you know, and uh, he's... Doesn't he try and lure Andy away from Bid? So at the beginning, we've got, as I say, we had these kind of three singers. Then Monica got dropped pretty quickly, I think, because she really, really, really couldn't sing. It's not just that she was a bit out of tune like Nico. <laughs> she just, <laughs> I think, you know, it was, it's a definite no-no. So now we're down to two singers. And they're just both singer-songwriters. We've got completely different sorts of songs that they're bringing into the rehearsal room. For completely different approaches to things and got a completely different vision of what they want to do so I suppose I suppose it wasn't going to last um yeah so so Stuart disappeared well we know now that he was in hospital but 
you know, mm. we know now that he's been diagnosed with bipolar. And we know now that he had an anorexia. Nobody talked about these sort of things at the time. He just had these mysterious disappearances. So at one, at one point when he hadn't been around for a couple of months, um, me and Andy and Bid were rehearsing together kind of fairly regularly um, and getting together a kind of set of songs. Um, and we were just about to do a gig at the ICA. So I was working at the ICA and I managed to get us a, a slot in the cafe, which is normally for acoustic, you know, guitarists and things. So um, I got us a slot there. Um, and then everything kind of went topsy-turvy a week or two before because Adam just suddenly reappeared, started phoning me nightly on that payphone in the basement. You said he was on the phone for hours each day, right? Just, sort of just completely, bouncing completely ideas just, just talking non-stop. And it all sounded so nonsensical. It all sounded so fantastical because he'd just he'd just be saying that he was going to completely reinvent himself he was going to be like a kind of Clark Kent to Superman he was going to throw off this sick and feeble you know persona he was going to change into make himself remake himself and that's why he was going to call himself Adam he was going to be the first man a new man he was going to get rid of his whole past uh, and he was going to make himself into a superstar and all the all the little girls would be wetting themselves with excitement and he'd play stadiums and he'd be the rig biggest, biggest pop star in the world. And, and you'd just listen to all this from this very, very, <laughs> you know, nervous and shaky and, to be honest, rather mentally unstable person and you just go... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love this mm. bit. You said today's call. He's talking nineteen to the dozen, speeding almost. I know he's not actually speeding because he never ever takes drugs. He doesn't even drink or smoke. Don't drink, don't smoke. What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> but he sounds like he is. He hardly draws breath. The ideas come so thick and fast. Adam. He's just decided on Adam. Adam Ant. The band will be called the Ants, like the Beatles, except the Ants. But they'll be bigger than the Beatles. I mean, what is extraordinary about that is that. This vision that he has, which is quite crazed and you might say unrealistic, actually mm. comes true. It comes true and he makes it come true. And then a couple of years down the line, when it gets to the point where he and Andy are just not functioning together, well, it's not just he and Andy, it's he, Andy, Matthew, you know, the, the, the big fallout that ended up in, in the split in the band. Um, it's basically he's just, just become more and more kind of centred on pushing himself forward regardless of what anyone else thinks about anything at all. And although it so was... So it's not a band, it's about him. It becomes much more mm. much more about about him, yeah. Mm. So there's lots of kind of... Lots of fallings out over the making of the first album, Dirt Wears White Socks. Um, basically, Adam, Adam and Dave Barb end up, you know, kind of staying together and... And um, I think I think partly because Dave is just really, he was much younger. And Dave Barb's the drummer. Yeah, yeah. Dave Barb was the drummer. Um, he's younger. He's very easygoing. He gets on with everyone. And crucially, Adam doesn't play drums. <laughs> so Adam sings. Adam plays guitar. Adam plays bass. So Adam would be doing things like kind of overdubbing other people's parts when they were making the album Andy was obviously getting very upset about that Matthew was getting very upset about that you know so 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 that was really at the kind of core of what was going wrong when Dirk Wears White Socks was being made for you to uh, I mean because it's quite rapid isn't it I mean they, they mm. get signed and um, you know he's driven lots of people in a way who are you know have got that sort of strong vision that are also quite difficult, aren't they? I mean, it seems to go hand in hand. Yeah. Right? Um, 
and what was it like witnessing that then to sort of you know these people they Andy's your partner and they're, they're all mates and stuff and then get on, get on this kind of rocket ship to stardom yeah, it just got really really difficult mm. and by now I'm play, playing in my own band Rima Rima with Marco Marco mm. Peroni who's a guitarist who by now I'm going out with um, so we have this um, very strange situation when the ants um, when we have the whole kind of blow up where um, where where Adam ends up asking Malcolm McLaren to manage him and then either Adam sacks him or Malcolm sacks Adam depending on which version of the story you 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 believe um but basically they go their separate ways but Adam keeps the name so Malcolm has the band so he's got Dave and Matthew Lee Gorman on bass and um and Adam turns up at Marco's house in Harrow with this plea that Marco joins up with him so again, I mean, you know, it's that same situation again, just as it was before. With ah, you know, you've got to, you've got to persuade Andy to leave Bid and to kind of that he really, really needs to come and kind of play bass for me. And now we've got, we've got the oh, you know, <laughs> Marco's really got to join up with me. So if she did, uh, if she did, and the rest is history and because became, and then they did, you know, conquer the world, conquer the world, yeah. right? And I mean, that yeah. that is, you know, to have that sort of vision and see it through is quite something, isn't it? It is, and the thing that I always go back to is is that um, although I got very cross about a lot of things at the time, um, if you go right back to those very first conversations in that sort of basement on that payphone in Exhibition Road, he said that's what he wanted to do. This is a sidebar, another reading from Dorothy Max Pryor's book. I have long since ceased to be muse or confidant. My constant defence of Andy and my close friendship with Matthew have made me persona non grata. Plus, I have a complete inability to hold my tongue and just blurt out what I think without being asked, which doesn't help. Adam stays close to Dave Barb, who is now his one ally in the band. Dave's an easygoing sort who stays friends with everyone involved. And of course, Adam needs Dave more than he needs Andy or Matthew. Adam plays guitar and bass, and therefore can, and often does, a bone of contention, redo guitar and bass parts when recording. But he needs a drummer to make an album. I don't go to any of the recording sessions, and at gigs my conversations with Adam are strained. At one point, I'm banned from backstage for some small misdemeanor. I forget what. It would seem that Adam now wants to remove anyone from his life who knew him as the shy and retiring Stuart. His wife, Carol, who naturally changed her name to Eve, has been out of the picture for a long time. Keen to keep up in the open marriage stakes, she had a number of liaisons, including one in the bathroom with former Sex Pistols' Glenn Matlock, which inspired the Ants song's bathroom function. Source for the goose. With hindsight, a marvellous thing. It's obvious that Adam's all-or-nothing love-hate relationship with people who once he's decided are against him, are pushed aside ruthlessly. It's a red flag warning for bipolar disorder, which he's eventually diagnosed with, having also suffered from anorexia and nervous breakdown as a teenager. On one occasion, not long before the answer formed, Adam is the only visitor allowed in during one of his regular hospital stays. But at the time, the dots aren't joined up, and it's just seen as Adam being Adam vacillating between being completely engaging and adorable and being a total cunt. Excuse my French. He drives me mad. I don't want anything to do with him most of the time. But when he's on stage, 
I forgive him for everything, and I'm as besotted as any of the Ant fans. Aye, there's the rub. On stage he becomes his perfect self, a creation that's more real than anything real life can offer. He became what he really what he really wanted to be, yeah. The other stuff, yeah, was just stepping stones. You know, he was always very clear that, that he wanted the biggest he wanted the biggest, you know, prize of all. And of course he's been troubled by mental health issues since, hasn't he? It's just always been there, yeah. yeah I think now we've just got a much better understanding mm. of these sort of things. Are yeah. you still in touch? I'm not, no. Mm. I need, I mean I I was indirectly through Jordan, mm. but Jordan's died now, so... This is really post-punk, isn't it, right? I mean, it's coming out of punk, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. to me, the Ants of the Banshees are second wave. Right. And you say in the book, and in fact, you know, when Andrew Zazerski and, and Susan were here, they were saying the same thing. They run the Roxy, you know, the yes. famously 100 Nights at the Roxy in its first incarnation. And so, well, there wasn't anything such as punk. This was an invention after the fact by journalists and stuff. These kind of quite disparate bands, you know, with all sorts of different styles and different sounds mm. and different clubs, and they got bunched together as this thing called punk, and it was mm. very brief, wasn't it? So that was, you, you You were at the heart of that. You were going to the Roxy, were you, and you were seeing all those bands at the time? Really, I think for a lot of us, the thing with no name, the thing that Peter York called them, you know, this alternative wonderful counterculture thing that was as you say a real um cornucopia you know sort of mm. mixing pot of lots of different things that kind of died at the end of 76 when the sex pistols were on bill grundy and suddenly the tabloids had this word punk to throw around at people and then you had clash signing to cbs right which uh mark perry of sniffing glue that for him um denotes the moment that punk died um, because the clash had taken the dollar. You know, they were supposed to represent all this kind of alternative politics and anti-capitalism stance, and they signed to CBS, and it was just like, oh. So in a funny sort of way, even though they never saw themselves as punk, um, Throbbing Gristle, were, who I was also sort of involved with and um, at the time, in a way they were kind of closer to the punk ethos mm. of, of DIY. We're going to have to pause there for a little bit of exposition, Max, because mm. for anybody who doesn't know Throbbing Gristle or Psychic TV or Genesis, mm. just give us a paint a picture of who they were. Genesis, Peoridge and Cozy Funny Tootie were two performance artists from Hull and they came out of the Hull Arts Lab scene. So there was this whole alternative late 1960s, early 1970s, performance art, stroke music um, scene that was happening in various places around the UK. Then they moved to London, and so Come Transmissions did these these um, esoteric and shocking performances that usually involved, you know, nudity and sometimes bodily fluids and live sexual activity and very loud, um, raucous music. And um, in October... 1976 they had an exhibition on at the ICA the Institute of Contemporary Arts that was called Prostitution and it was mostly about the sort of the hub of it was Cozy's work as a porn model so all the pictures from um, porn magazines that been framed and put on the wall so this is a whole thing questioning what art is you know the artist is choosing to frame herself mm. and therefore it is art you know so. everyone is a prostitute is the yeah. title of Yes, which I stole from um, a Subway Sex song. Yeah, um, yeah so, so uh, and, and on that um, evening of the, um, the press night, the opening night of Prostitution Exhibition, 
the the come transmissions as they were called then did a gig under the name throbbing gristle so and a lot of people saw it as a kind of art prank i mean i don't think for a minute most people there thought they were actually going to sort of stay with it and actually start a record label and and put out music but they did became you know the pioneers of industrial music mm. noise music for you do you think the sort of punk countercultural punk spirit that's one of the places that it went clash shining to cbs was the kind of the end of an era but the spirit itself went off in that direction with experimental art terrorist type stuff yes and the idea of just doing do, creating music and sound making yourself so so part although they were all very different you know the part of that kind of circle of people um that that were trying to forge their way in something that was different to the the punk path were Robin Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, my own band Rima Rima. Tell us about Rima Rima then. I kind of played with what became the monochrome set after Andy left and joined the Ants and then it didn't kind of quite work out, it didn't feel quite right somehow. So there I was in my drum kit and and nobody to play with. I uh, auditioned for Subway Sect and uh, I was kind of in the band, sort of in the band for half a day. I went, and then Vic Goddard phoned me up the next day and said, oh sorry, I don't know, we can't make a decision. And so uh, I wasn't in Subway Sect after all. Um, and it was Andy who saw an ad in um, Melody Maker and it just said, um, drummer wanted, no hi-hats. Um, and it mentioned craft work. I think it mentioned the Velvets or... Anyway, so it just very much looked as if it had my name on it. Just one name and no surname, Marco and a phone number. Uh, so I phoned up and met up with him and the others from the band. And that was it. We we formed a band together. A band that was very much kind of inspired, not just with things like craft work and the Velvets, but with with those, you know, the sort of German tradition of things like can. And we also, but we also really liked a lot of kind of funk and... Um, and we're going to hear a track by Rima Rima. Yeah, so this is this is off the Wheel in the Roses, the first and only EP that we made for 4AD. We were the first signing for 4AD. And so this is the... Um, the track came first, the band name came later. We couldn't think what to call ourselves, so we called ourselves Rima Rima. <laughs>
Great stuff. Right, so Sex Pistols have gone off doing their thing and mm. you had some interaction with them. Tell us a little bit about that. The Sex Pistols I first came across through a friend called Ted Polhemus. I was working with Ted at the ICA. Ted was friends with Malcolm and Vivian, Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. And the way Ted put it to me was that was that Malcolm had this new project, kind of like an art project, and he'd got together this sort of bunch of kids that hang around in the shop and sort of made them into a band. And But they couldn't play, ha-ha, you know, like art prank sort of thing, situationist joke. Mm. So that's how it was presented to me. And then I, I went along to see them at the Babaloo Club in uh, on the Finchley Road. And, um, yeah, I was very really taken with them. I mean, they were kind of a complete mess, but um, but were musically kind of interesting. They were they weren't. I didn't I didn't kind of concur with this idea that it was just an art joke. I just thought they were sort of because I really liked all the stuff kind of American, you know, garage band, messy psychedelia sort of stuff, and they reminded me a bit of that. It would have been spring nineteen seventy six. I mean, they were so short lived as well, weren't they? I mean, in they a were way, sweet, isn't it? Yeah. I didn't I didn't go and see them that many times. I think I only saw them about three times. Mm. Uh, the Babaloo Club, the Hundred Club. It's not like I became an absolute avid fan, mm. and, and because I'd sort of discovered Patti Smith, and mm. then we had sort of Jonathan Richmond and all mm. the kind of Americans, you know. So all of that was was bubbling bubbling up, and and, and also you sort of interact or you sort of weave through Westwood and McLaren don't you as well? I hardly ever spoke to Malcolm I kind of kind of knew Vivian a little bit and we all went to Louise's this club sort of lesbian supper club on a Friday night we're dancing to to Diana Ross records you know just dressing up socializing but I suppose it was the sort of this whole kind of crossover thing between mm. the the gay clubs and mm. disco and dancing obviously is runs through your whole life doesn't yeah. it and I mean you've it, you've taught ballroom dancing that's quite a long way from sort of the mosh pit of the Sex Pistols gig isn't it as well and I mean and you, you you also became a cabaret dancer I think you described it as you said it probably called burlesque now and, and, mm. and, and in those East End clubs tell us a bit about that um, well that was another connection that happened through Ted and Lynn because Lynn was working for this agency called Gemini and um, I was bemoaning the fact that I didn't have any money you know sort of earning some pittance at the ICA uh, doing occasional bit of glamour modelling but you know it's all sort of really um, yeah there wasn't very much money coming in and then there was this this suggestion that as I was a dancer anyway maybe I'd like to try go-go dancing so I did I, I'm know. not actually sure what it is I mean we haven't got room in oh. here to demonstrate but, um, <laughs> but what yeah. is what is go-go dancing then? Oh, One of my favourite places to work was the Chelsea Drugstore where they which was music boutique in, the, in Clockwork Orange okay. Yeah, so Chelsea Drugstore was a really famous discotheque um, <laughs> with flashing lights and, and actually had, you know, podiums that you got right. up on and danced. So go-go dancing late 60s, early 70s and, and still into the mid-70s in some venues like the drugstore, kind of. Yeah, I'll do a bit of a demo. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just uh, doing this kind of flinging my hair from side to side. You, you basically had a tiny little stage, a podium, mm. you know, and you wore white kinky boots and either a sort of... You know, turquoise yeah. bikini or maybe right. something in Lame or Lorex. Uh, and then they kind of introduced topless go-go dancing where you kind of whipped your top off for like five seconds at the end, you know. And then that went into the whole kind of um, striptease thing. 
You also said earlier that you used to do that in the East End and in the docks as well, and that was a yeah, favourite so place for you, right? Well, the thing about the East End and the city and the Docklands is they were actually very lucrative financially. Mm. And, um, you'd get booked as a dancer and you'd go-go dance, but then you'd do a striptease at the end, so you went round with a jug and collected money and put on your best costume, and the very last number was the striptease. But um, and you'd you'd get you know you'd get fivers in in the jug and all sorts. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of money then. You yeah. sort of make my make my rent three times over in one afternoon. No. Right, yeah. I mean, this is all supporting your kind of artistic, theatrical, and it just endeavors. made yeah, just made everything much easier. Really, mm. didn't never had to worry about money. Right, and the the city itself was a lot cheaper place to live then. Right, you could survive. You could you know live in central London or in this case in South Kensington, yeah. you know, and survive on not very much. Right? Andy and I never considered anything outside of the circle line to be London, you know. <laughs> I mean, we both, he came from Balham and I came from, from Gypsy Hill. And um, we both saw that as, like, not really London. I mean, when, when, when I was growing up in Gypsy Hill, Crystal Palace, we used to talk about going up to London. I mean, now people, you know, Crystal Palace, Gypsy Hill, Streatham, all those areas, they'd be considered sort of central really yeah of course i mean i remember even when i came places like clapton seemed impossibly far away yeah they're not london but but they are now i mean clapton's like hipster central you know yeah well it's just it's just expanding out and out and out it expanded as far as what we used to be called the stockbroker belt didn't it and then there wasn't anywhere else for it to go and then people started going to berlin or athens if you're the artistic bent because you couldn't really afford to kind of lifestyle that you were leaving is impossible right Mm. yeah so our stomping grounds were um king's road of course as is well documented by everybody everywhere um soho Mm -hmm. you know a little bit into camden but that was even that was quite a way out you know um max we're running out of time and but uh, could you dance us as it were to the end of the period that this book covers so you know all this has gone on you're actually at exhibition mode for what six years actually Yeah. yeah yeah so take us through to the end and why you left and where you went we got to. bought out because of the early 1980s property boom suddenly people went ah oh, aha all these people are living in this completely wrecked old house that we can do up so we got paid off and um Andy and I went our separate ways. Yeah, he went back to his parents in Balham. I went to Marco's parents in Harrow, even though I'd split up with Marco by then. <laughs> his parents had adopted me, so I went there. The point we get to at the end of the book, I, I've sort of played in a few other bands. Uh, I played in the Weekend Swingers, which was a sort of put-together band. It had both Marco and Andy and me in it, but we were a sort of fun, playing cover versions and things that... We used to play at a club around the corner from here, actually. We used to play in Gossips, Billy's. Right. Yeah, a, a night called Gaz's Rocking Blues. Gaz's Rocking yeah, Blues. Yeah, Gaz Mail. So yeah. we, yeah, so that was a fun thing. That was really nice to do something fun with Marco after all the stress of you know Rumorima splitting up, and it was of course fun to be playing with Andy again because that's how it all started. Then when Marco and Andy left that in order to pursue their proper <laughs> proper jobs with the Ants and the Monochrome set, um, I stayed with the others and we changed our name to the L Trains. But it was a bit too regular kind of rockabilly for me. It was all right, but yeah, I had a year or so of doing that. 
I, and, and, and it was the first time I'd ever played the regular rock circuit. So I did everywhere, did all those places, the Nashville and the Marquee. And the city itself starts to change, doesn't it? You say this is the kind of 80s, so yeah. Thatcherism. Yeah. Well, we had all the riots. riots. I mean, when we were playing with the L trains, we'd be driving through, you know, burning streets and things mm. like that. Um, I'd sort of discovered green politics by then. I'd gone from the sort of anarchy and whoa, you know, sort of stuff into, into really enjoying things like Schumacher's um, Small is Beautiful yeah. and, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's still so countercultural, but the counterculture is just shifting, yeah. Shifting and it evolved, isn't it, through the 80s? Yeah, and, you know, yeah so I was definitely shifting. Yeah. And um, Michael Moorcock, who I interviewed, um, oh, he, he put some. Them and Alan Moore actually put sort of the end of, they call it the end of the counterculture, which I don't think is quite right, but I, in a way, that particular incarnation of it was sort of put to death by the 80s and the kind of Thatcherism and all that sort of stuff. And of course, it's not quite true because after that, there's rave culture and there's always a counterculture. I meet so many people now say, oh, you know, it's not like it was and there's nothing mm. going on. And you kind of go, well, it's just shifted and you wouldn't know about it. You're 60. You You're right. Know it's, about it's, it. How it, would you know yeah, about we it? We say that time and time again here. It's, the, it's going on and it's going on slightly out of sight. That's why it's called the underground. But um, Max, so uh, this book is a, it's a picaresque. Dame Coyote. <laughs> I quite like that, Dame Coyote. Dame Coyote. Yeah, picaresque you know, is a nice word. Yeah, yeah. 12 Polaroids from the 70s. I recommend it to listeners to hear more of Max's adventures in, you call it the fag end of punk. I suppose that's probably quite a, <laughs> quite a good import, porn and performance. And um, looking back, of course, I mean, it is. did the writing the book make it all much more vivid again for you? It did, It's a not, but it's an odd process, isn't it? There's, a sort, there's something I refer to a number of times in the book is this one when when looking at the photo actually kills the memory, you know, because the photo takes over from the memory. The photo freezes the memory. And similarly with writing about things, you now, in your head anyway, you've, you've, you, you, you've pigeonholed that as the truth. That's how it was. Um, it's quite interesting, actually. After, I, after I'd written it, I found some very old diary entries. And it was a completely different me writing those diary entries. I know it's like you're very one is very different on every day of the week kind of thing but it was kind of like it was quite kind of depressive valium taking 21 year old you know that was just like how i was for a couple of months i think but but it just like that i'd wiped that bit out of my memory that didn't mm. come into this book at all so i just i just thought oh you know it's really interesting because you could you could actually just keep rewriting the same thing some memories it's like well, do you actually remember that or is it just that you've seen the photograph so of it times, which you know yeah. and, or have people told you about it or something yeah. like that you know the interest it's interesting with journals isn't it because you know I'm, i've i've always been a journal writer but god i mean yeah. you wouldn't want anybody to read them it's not like samuel peeps i mean this is a bit samuel peeps like of course yeah things that you write that you intend to be read i mean mm. i mean i do morning pages you yeah know, like the sort right. of artist and there's no way i mean i've got i'll have to write in my will somewhere they have to be burned oh god yeah, yeah mine absolutely too. not mine intended too. no they've got to go on the so you do change and edit yeah. and obviously you're making choices about mm. so you remember things and then you decide what of those which of those memories are going to go in and how you're going to kind of frame them and it's all constant edit. what for you was just life you know you're you're a young woman in london meeting people living a certain way and it's then later it becomes this bit of history called punk you know with exhibitions and books written about it and mm. countless interviews and stuff but it just happened to be your life at the time didn't it and then everybody else was living their life too and some some of it was not reinterpreted by history so yes it's forgotten yeah you get these little clumps of people don't you i mean so many people that 
that are mentioned in this book and we're friends with you know we didn't know we were all good if so many of them are kind of become pop stars or mm. became famous mm. filmmakers like Derek Jarman or John Derek Mabry Jarman, or yeah. famous musicians famous visual artists it's quite, it's quite kind of interesting how you, how you just do get groups of friends that all somehow go off and do things <laughs> well thanks so much for telling us some of these tales there's a lot more in the book listener um, we didn't dig into all sorts of other stuff that's in there so I recommend it's as I said it's not only a great memoir and beautifully written um, but also it's wonderful picture of the city at a particular time so Max thanks for coming to the Bureau of Oz Culture thank you very much for having me thanks to Max that was great fun and as you can tell listeners Max is great fun great value as is her book 69 Exhibition Road published by Strange Attractor Press it's beautifully written very evocative of a particular era and a particular bunch of people and a terrific picture or 12 Polaroids, as I see it, of this city in time. I love London, but it is amazing to think how different it was then. Cities always change, don't they? And there's little point being sentimental or nostalgic. As Max said, people have always complained about changes, always saying it used to be better. But someone said to me fairly recently, it's not that Soho was better when we first came to London. It was just that we were better, maybe, younger and excited about being there. Thanks for joining us. Leave a review, if you like, wherever you're listening, or recommend us to a friend. And come back next time for more tales from the underground. Here is another Rima Rima track to finish. Goodbye. Goodbye.